Oxein angelein lacedaimoniois hotitede keimetha tois keinon remasi peithomenoi. Or in English, O stranger, tell the Lacedaemonians that we lie here obedient to their words. This famous verse by the ancient poet Simonides about the heroic death of the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae was exploited by the Nazi Germans in 1943 during the Battle of Stalingrad to justify the loss of the encircled 6th German army. The Nazi propaganda changed the meaning of the verse in a very subtle way and thus made use of a fatal translation error which goes all the way back to the famous orator Cicero. This is just one example of the many topics that we discuss on our YouTube channel Sandroman. Another example is our more humorous series, in which we follow a cartoonish Herodotus, for example to Scythia, where he learns about cannabis-related burial rituals, or to Egypt, where he learns how crocodiles were hunted. If any of this sounds intriguing, you'll find us under S-A-N-D-R-H-O-M-A-N on YouTube. Cheers and thanks to Ryan for giving us this opportunity. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 96, Athens on the Offensive. The years 427 to 424 BC had witnessed a major change in strategy, away from Pericles' predominantly defensive policy. New generals, such as Demosthenes, had appeared on the Athenian political scene, and backed by politicians in Athens, like Cleon, they had set about taking the initiative to Sparta in the hopes of winning the war offensively and decisively. This newer and bolder strategy would see a run of successes at Pylos, Sphacteria, Corinth, Methana, and Kithera, but also would be followed by a run of failures in Megara, Boeotia, Sicily, and Thrace. These failures led to the temporary eclipse of Demosthenes and similar advocates of an aggressive war policy, and a return to Pericles' defensive strategy in the final three years of the Arcadamian War, from 424 to 421 BC. The next two episodes will detail how Athens managed to erode their advantageous position following Sphacteria until they were forced to return to the negotiating table with a much weaker hand than before. For a period of several years in the mid-420s BC, Syracuse and its allies fought a war against Athens and its allies on Sicily and southern Italy, known as the First Sicilian Expedition. We have discussed these events intermittently as they occurred in previous episodes. But let's have a quick review. The war originated as a conflict between Syracuse and Leontini in 427 BC, but expanded when the Leontinians appealed to their ally Athens for support. Finally, it grew into a wide-ranging conflict that involved many Greek Dorian and Ionian cities and native sickles. Athenian forces, under their general Lachis, fought alongside Regium, Leontini, Naxos, Camarina, and various sickle tribes. 
Using Regium on the eastern side of the Strait of Messana as their base, they achieved several initial successes. In 426 BC, they attacked several other towns allied to Syracuse and ultimately managed to capture the strategically vital city of Messana on the western side of the strait, thus giving them complete control of the shipping between Sicily and southern Italy. The Syracusans, who led in an alliance including Locris, Gela, and other eastern Sicilian cities, were able to regroup that winter, and they managed to regain the initiative by the spring of 425 BC. After they recaptured Masana, while the Locrian army invaded Regian territory as a distraction. Afterwards, a squadron of 30 Syracusan and Locrian ships guarded the straits and threatened several of Athens' allies. In that summer, additional Syracusan and allied troops were sent as reinforcements to this squadron, fully expecting an Athenian counterattack. But when the Syracusans received word that the Athenian reinforcement fleet that was destined to join them at Regium had become engaged in blocking the island of Sphacteria back in the Peloponnese, they decided to strike the enemy in their moment of vulnerability, and so they prepared for an attack on Regium, both by land and by sea. Although they were incited to this chiefly by the Locrians, for their hatred of the Regians, the Syracusans also wished to try their fortune at sea against the Athenians as they currently only had a few ships that had wintered at Regium. The Syracusans hoped that a naval victory would allow them to take complete control of the strait between the two cities and blockade Regium by land and by sea. Thucydides then describes the strait and points out that it is the Charybdis through which Odysseus once sailed, and he confirms that the strength of the current that pours in from the Tyrrhenian Sea rightly has given it a bad reputation. Eventually, the Locrian army once again invaded the territory of the Regions, while the 30 Syracusan and Locrian ships engaged 16 Athenian and 8 Regian vessels in the strait. Despite their numerical advantage, the Syracusans and Locrians were narrowly defeated and forced to sail away, though they only lost one ship. After this defeat, the Locrian army retired from Regian territory, and the ships of Syracuse and their allies came to anchor at Cape Pelorus which sat north of Regium in the territory of Messana. Here, their land forces joined them as well. The Athenians and Regians, though, sailed up from their position and attacked the Syracusan and Locrian fleet, when their ships were at dock and were unmanned, and then they sailed off. In the process, the Athenians managed to lose one vessel that was caught by a grappling iron, though the crew saved themselves by jumping ship and swimming away. Grappling irons were large metal hooks with attached lines that were designed to be thrown in order to catch the railings of enemy ships. The lines were then used to pull the hostile ships alongside one another so that the crews could engage in hand-to-hand combat, in what Thucydides famously called the old style of fighting, as opposed to the periplus, or a style of ramming that the Athenians tended to employ. In this instance, the one Athenian ship when it rammed a particular Syracusan one, somehow got stuck by its grappling iron. But the Athenians managed to disable many Syracusan and Locrian ships, and so the Messanians began to tow them along the shore back to their city for repair. Along the way, though, the Athenian ships once again attacked them, but they were able to defend themselves better this time, while causing the loss of another Athenian vessel in the process, and made it safely to the harbor of Messana. Meanwhile, the Athenians at Regium had received word that one of their allies, Camarina, was on the verge of flipping sides at the behest of a Camarinian man named Archias and his pro-Syracusan party. 
And so they immediately sailed to Camarina to smooth things over. But with the Athenian fleet no longer in the vicinity, and so with the Athenian fleet no longer in the vicinity, the Messanians took this opportunity to attack their pro-Athenian neighbors to the south, Naxos, by sea and by land, with all of their forces. Initially, the Naxians stayed behind their walls. Although the Messanian navy sailed around with their ships and laid waste to Naxian territory on the Akasenes River, and their land forces marched right up to the city walls. But on the second day, the sickles came down from the high country in the interior, in great numbers, in order to provide aid to the Naxians. Elated by this sight, as well as the belief that the Leontines and their other Greek allies must also be coming to their support alongside them, the Naxians suddenly sailed out from their city, attacking and routing the Messanians. Thucydides reports that more than a thousand Messanians were killed in this fighting, and even more were cut down in their retreat home by sickles on the road. Upon hearing that their army was defeated, the Messanian ships then sailed back to Messana. Upon hearing that their army was defeated, the Messanian ships then sailed back to their home harbor. At the same time, after settling things in Camarina and managing to keep their precarious alliance with the Camarinians still intact, the Athenians returned to Messana and joined the Naxians, Leontines, Regians, and Sickles, who by now were looking for revenge and were attacking the weakened Messanians. At first, the Messanians sallied out from their city, led by Demotales and some Logrians who had been left to garrison the city, while the rest of their forces were at Naxos. This garrison managed to rout the Leontine army and killed a great number of them. But after the Athenian fleet arrived and began to disembark, the Messanians grew disordered and eventually ran back into their city. And so the Athenians claimed victory, set up a trophy, and returned to Regium. Basically, the fighting that took place on land and sea between Athens, Naxos, Regium, the Sickles, and Leontini on one side, and Syracuse, Gela, Locris, and Masana on the other, was inconclusive during that summer campaign season, and there would be no more fighting on Sicily in 425 BC. When Eurymedon and Sophocles finally arrived with reinforcements late in the summer of 425 BC, they found that their allies were now weary of war and were starting to think that the Athenians did not have the will and capacity to fight for their interests, as they were too preoccupied with their own battles on the Greek mainland. This feeling would only grow stronger over the next year, until two Greek city-states set the catalyst in motion for peace on Sicily. Although they had been traditional allies, Camarina and Gela had found themselves on different sides of the conflict. Gela was also an ally of Syracuse, but Camarina was deeply hostile to that city, and so they sided with the Athenians. But as we have seen, that alliance was a precarious one. Eventually, Camarina and Gela had grown so tired of the war that they concluded their own separate armistice in the summer of 424 BC. Since a bilateral peace between those two cities only was unlikely to last while the rest of the island remained at war, they invited all the other belligerents to convene and discuss peace terms at Gela as a sort of diplomatic congress, an occurrence that is a rarity in Greek history. The Greek Sicilian cities not only sent ambassadors to this congress, but also granted them with unusually broad powers in order to conduct diplomacy. The proceedings of the so-called Congress of Gela are known largely through the writings of Thucydides. But since he was not in Sicily at the time, his account of the specific speeches given is certainly his own composition. The modern historians have generally concluded that Thucydides likely presents the general thrust of the meeting accurately. 
The meeting opened with complaints from various states about the wrongs done to them during the war by one side and the other. It shifted tone, though, after a speech by the charismatic Syracusan delegate, a man named Hermocrates. At the time, he was said to have been the most influential among the Syracusans, and this reputation would only increase during the next decade. As reported by Thucydides, he begins his speech by claiming to speak not solely in the interest of his own city, but for all of Sicily. He then declares that Sicily needs peace, and makes an extended appeal to Sicilian unity, warning against Athens' imperial ambition by painting a picture of a peaceful coexistence between the Greek cities of Sicily that would be supported by a unified opposition to outside interference. He urges the Greeks of Sicily to abandon their old conflicts between Dorians and Ionians, as it will only make them easy prey for outsiders like the Athenians, who he claims is the common enemy of all Sicilians. Essentially, he tries to persuade the Sicilians to patch up their individual differences, because internecine warfare will only serve to weaken them all, and thus render them vulnerable to Athenian subjugation. Although Hermocrates' speech might seem to be sincere or altruistic, Syracuse at that time was the single largest and most powerful state on Sicily, and stood to dominate the island's politics if outside influences like Athens were excluded. So it's likely that there were ulterior motives at play here. But because of either persuasion, war weariness, or a mixture of the two, the representatives at the conference agreed to the Syracusan proposal for a Sicily for the Sicilians. They voted for a peace on the basis of the status quo, with the only change being that Syracuse, in a sign of good faith, ceded Morgantina to the Camerinians in exchange for monetary payments. Athens's allies then notified them of the treaty and invited them to join in on the pact. Although this clearly was not the objective of their expedition, with their allies being no longer willing to fight and their own forces being inadequate to conquer the island single-handedly, the generals commanding Athens' fleet in the area were forced to accept the treaty. Shortly thereafter, they sailed the fleet back to mainland Greece, bringing an end to the three-year war in the region. Though the peace agreement was intended to be perpetual, both war and outside involvement in Sicilian affairs would resume within a decade. But that's a tale for another episode. It could be argued that the Athenians had accomplished all that they set out to do on Sicily, since their primary mission was to protect their allies from Syracusan aggression, as well as to disrupt Sicilian grain trade to the Peloponnese. But when the Athenian fleet returned home to the Piraeus, the Athenian people were disappointed that they had not managed to get more of a foothold on the island, because by that point, public opinion had decisively turned in favor of Sicilian conquest, even while at war with the Spartans and their allies. The confident and ambitious Athenians began to believe that Sicily should have been conquered, and since it wasn't, their generals must have been bribed to withdraw. These were standard accusations leveled in democratic Athens at unsuccessful statesmen or generals, or even those whose success was not as complete as the Athenian people had hoped for. The three Athenian generals in question here may have taken gifts from Sicilian friends for helping them, but there is no evidence for bribery. Still, they had shown minimal initiative and accomplished very little, despite possessing a fleet of 60 ships. Whereas Lachis had gained control of the straits and had Syracuse on the ropes with just 20. No doubt, 
Many in Athens felt that following any withdrawal of the Athenian fleet, it wouldn't be long before Sicily united under Syracuse's banner as a Dorian state, friendly to the Peloponnesians. And so this is likely how most Athenians felt when their three generals arrived back from Sicily with news of peace. All three were put on trial, and all three were convicted, which resulted in the Athenians promptly deposing and fining Eurymedon, while reserving the punishment of exile for the other two strategoi who had participated in the expedition, Pithodotus and Sophocles. Thucydides explains why the Athenians convicted them. Quote, Because of the good fortune the Athenians enjoyed at this time, they expected that nothing would go against them, but that they could achieve equally both what was possible and impracticable. Whether their power was adequate or insufficient, it did not matter. The reason for this was their extraordinary success in most undertakings, which made them confuse their strengths with their hopes. End quote. Essentially, the Athenians were overly confident in the wake of their successes at Pylos, Factaria, and Methana the previous year, and they had greater expectations than before and felt unrealistic optimism. Well, collectively together, the events of 424 BC would break that hopeful spirit. Cleon's great success at Factaria led to his election as general in the spring of 424 BC, along with Demosthenes and Lamachus two other men in his aggressive war faction. Also elected were Nicias, Nicostratus, Atocles, and the historian Thucydides, all of whom were opposed to Cleon and his policies. We discussed last episode how as general, for the first time, Cleon had a front row seat at the city Dionysia and was humiliated by Aristophanes in his play The Knights. Still, Cleon's confidence was not shaken, and similarly, the Athenians' confidence had grown too because they had achieved the unthinkable and compelled Spartan hoplites to surrender their arms. The majority of Athenians were now ready to pursue a more militant strategy. So in the same spring, the Athenians voted to send out Nicias, Nicostratus, and Atocles with a force of 60 ships, 2,000 hoplites, some cavalry, and a number of allied troops from Miletus and other cities in the empire. They were tasked with seizing and establishing a garrison on Kythera an island sitting opposite of Cape Malia on the southeastern coast of Laconia. This was part of a newer, bolder strategy, modeled after the examples of Pylos and Methana, to place strongholds at key sites in the Peloponnesian coastline. Kythera, in particular, was an important Spartan base for trade with Egypt and Libya, whose merchant ships provided them with grain and other valuable items. Kythera's inhabitants were Spartans of the Perioikoi class, and a garrison of Spartan hoplites was stationed there for defense of the Laconian coast from privateers, who manned privately owned boats and were unofficially licensed by various city-states to attack shipping. The Athenians, though, wished to use Kythera to cut off this trade, and it could serve as a springboard for raids on the eastern coastline. And it could serve as a springboard for raids on the southern coastline and as a convenient stopping place on the route around the Peloponnese. And so, with ten ships and a small number of hoplites, Nicias swiftly seized the eastern coastal city of Scandia, while the main force landed on the western side of the island, looking towards Cape Malia, and marched on the town of Kythera itself in the interior, which was where all of the island's inhabitants lived. 
a battle ensued, and the Catharians managed to hold their ground for some time, but they eventually were driven up onto their Acropolis. Once Nicias arrived, though, he persuaded the Catharians to surrender. Apparently, correspondence had previously been going on between him and some of their inhabitants, which caused the surrender to be effected more speedily and with terms that were more generous for the Catharians, who would otherwise have been expelled by the Athenians because they were Spartan Perioikoi and their island was located so close to Laconia. Instead, they were allowed to remain on the island and keep their land. In return, an Athenian garrison would be installed at Scandia, near the harbor, and the Catharians would be incorporated into the Athenian Empire as a tribute-paying ally of four talents annually. After the Athenians seized and garrisoned the island of Kythera, they began to launch raids against the southern Laconian coastline, forcing many Perioikoi there to capitulate. The Spartans initially reacted to this unwelcome situation by sending garrisons to guard various strategic sites in the Peloponnese, and by organizing, for the first time, a corps of 400 cavalry and a troop of an unspecified number of archers to provide a sort of mobile coast defense, where necessary. But once these garrisons got to their assigned sites, they didn't make any further movements and essentially allowed the Athenians to ravage their seaboard as they pleased. That's because, according to Thucydides, the Spartans had become totally unnerved by the Athenians now being at Pylos, Mythana, and Kythera, and were fearful that one miscalculation would cause another calamity to strike against them, like the previous year on the island of Sphacteria. Essentially, the Spartans were paralyzed by the fear of making another tactically bad decision. They were convinced that the Athenians were planning to establish similar fortified garrisons in Laconia, which prevented them from sending out their full force for offensive operations. They also feared that this would cause a revolution against the government, which probably means that they feared a helot revolt. Thucydides says that for this reason, they were less daring in going into battle, and they thought that any operation, which they would undertake, would turn out badly because they had no self-confidence as a result of having little previous experience with misfortune, contrasting greatly with the enormous confidence with which they entered the war. Furthermore, tentative negotiations between Sparta and Persia had broken down over the previous winter, as we mentioned last episode. So thanks to Spartan timidity, it probably was this campaign that gave the Athenians the best chance to win the war decisively. Because with Pylos, Methana, and Kythera in their hands, the Athenians should have been in a position to intervene effectively in Mycenaean Laconia. But for whatever reason, they never achieved as much as they had hoped, and the Spartans had feared. And so, after only about seven days, they set sail for home. Ravaging on the return journey, Epidaurus Lamera and Thyria, both on the eastern coast of Laconia. Thyria, in particular, was in Kynoria, the border area that had long been a source of contention between Sparta and Argos, where the Aginines had been settled after the Athenians had expelled them from their island at the beginning of the war. At the moment, the exiled Aginines were still in the process of building their fortifications near the sea with the assistance of one of the Spartan district garrisons. When they saw the Athenian fleet approaching, the Aginetans evacuated the fort and retreated into the upper city, which was about a mile from the sea. But the Spartan district garrison refused to enter the city with them, as they thought, rightfully so, that it was far too dangerous to shut themselves up behind their walls. At the same time, they were not willing to engage the Athenians in battle, 
so they retreated to a higher ground, further in Laconia. They would be proven correct, because once the Athenian fleet landed and disembarked, they instantly took Thyrea. It was pillaged, and then set ablaze, and many Aginetans were killed. Those who survived, plus any of those who had been captured from Kythera and other places in Laconia, would be taken back to Athens as prisoners. Among them was a Spartan commander named Tantalus, who had been wounded, and apparently was one Spartan who wasn't too cowardly to fight the Athenians. He was to share the imprisonment with his fellow Spartans from Sphacteria. When the prisoners arrived back in Athens, the Laconian Perioikoi were scattered throughout the Aegean Islands for safekeeping, while the Aginetans were put to death because the Athenians hated them so much. Another atrocity was added to the growing list, as the war only intensified old rivalries. By this point, Athens had almost completely abandoned the defensive strategy of Pericles, as they instead began to undertake aggressive operations against their neighbors with the intention of depriving Sparta of crucial allies and providing Attica with full security against any invasion. Basically, they were now taking the approach that the best defense is a good offense. Athens's campaigns in the Peloponnese had tied the hands of the Spartans, but their two biggest and immediate threats, both in the war and historically, were Megara and Boeotia, and these two still had to be dealt with if the Athenians were ever going to feel fully secure in their situation. As we discussed in episode 94, Economic hardships during the war had caused stasis to break out in Megara, and for a time, a democratic faction had control of the city. Eventually, the pro-Athenian and democratic fervor collapsed, but the extreme oligarchic regime still remained in exile and began raiding the Megarian countryside to put economic pressure on their fellow citizens to force them to acquiesce and allow them to return. At the same time, Alarmed by this new democratic leadership, Sparta had stationed a garrison of its own at Nysiae, the eastern port of Megara, to keep a watch on the democrats in the city. Eventually, the exiled oligarchic Megarians seized the western port of Pegai on the Gulf of Corinth. And so, without control of Pegai or Nysiae, the Megarians could only obtain food and other supplies overland from the Peloponnese by way of Corinth. But because the allies disliked and suspected them of cooperating with the Athenians, the Corinthians were not so eager to aid them. However, following the events at Sphacteria and the Spartans' eagerness to sue for peace to get back their men, many of their allies had started to distrust them. In particular, the Megarians began to fear that Sparta would turn over Nysiae to the Athenians in any deal in exchange for their prisoners. Faced with this, some of the Megarians began to contemplate recalling their exiles from Pegai, hoping to recover the use of their western port. This idea began to be floated about by those Megarians still in the city that were friends of the oligarchic exiles. Some of the pro-Athenian Democrats, though, saw that their suffering had worn down the determination of the people, and as a result, they would likely give in to this demand. And so, at the same time, a small group of Democrats entered into secret correspondence with Demosthenes and Hippocrates, not the physician, as they believed that the Athenians would be less dangerous to them than the return of the exiles which they had banished. So they planned to betray their city and to aid Athens in capturing the long walls that connected Megara to Nysiae. 
If the plan succeeded, Megara would join the Athenian alliance and operate the forts on their southwestern frontier to keep the Peloponnesians permanently out of the Megarid. And in return, Athens would end the annual invasions, commercial embargo, and blockade. These negotiations had to be done in secret, though, because most Megarians would not have been okay with this plan. Despite their sufferings, Athens was still one of their most bitter enemies in a long-standing feud that had lasted for over 150 years now. In the ensuing so-called Battle of Megara, the Athenian plan to capture the city of Megara was both complicated and risky, as their success depended on surprise and secrecy. So only a handful of people knew when and how the plot was going to take place. On the agreed-upon evening, the Athenians approached Megara from two locations. Hippocrates led a force of 600 hoplites on ships from Manoa in the Saronic Gulf, and after they landed, they took cover in a trench near the walls of Nisii. At the same time, Demosthenes led some lightly armed Plataeans and a small number of Parapoloi on foot by the road from Eleusis to Megara. Little was known about the Parapoloi, but they seemed to have been a special mobile force of young Athenian hoplites who served as a frontier guard. After their arrival just outside of Nisii, Demosthenes and his men set up an ambush near the shrine of the war god Enyalius. Rounding out this three-pronged attack, the Athenians were to be let into the long walls, linking Megara to Nisii, by the Megarian Democrats. Each night, the Peloponnesian garrison at Megara had opened up Nisii's gates in order to allow the Megarians to wheel out a small rowboat on a cart under the cover of darkness. This had been a ruse, as the Megarians sailed off and pretended to be marauding the Athenians in their camps. Once they finished before daybreak, they would bring it back into the city without raising any internal suspicions. So on the agreed-upon evening, with Demosthenes and Hippocrates' forces already in place, the gates had been opened to receive the boat. But the Megarian traders manning the boat killed the guards, and Demosthenes and Hippocrates swiftly took their men through the Nisian gate. The first to enter were Demosthenes and the force of lightly armed Plataeans, who immediately attacked the Peloponnesian garrison that was assigned to the gate. At a prearranged time, 4,000 Athenian hoplites and 600 cavalry also arrived from Athens in order to help them secure their position. Then, the Athenian army altogether made an assault on the long walls. Some of the main body of the Peloponnesian garrison stood their ground and tried to repel the assault, but most of the others, due to the darkness and the sight of the Megarian traitors in arms against them, thought that the whole of Megara had turned against them, so they retreated back to Nisii. By daybreak, the Athenians had managed to gain control of the long walls. Afterwards, they sent a herald to the Megarians, inviting any of them who wished to switch sides and join the Athenian ranks. However, even at this stage, the Megarian Democrats chose not to publicly suggest a change of alliance. Instead, they pretended to be outraged by the captured walls and encouraged their fellow Megarians to open the city gates and attack the Athenians. But this again was a part of the ruse because the conspirators and the Athenians had already made an agreement that the Athenian army would rush into the city of Megara at the moment that the gates were opened. In addition, the Megarian conspirators agreed to cover themselves in olive oil in order to differentiate themselves more easily from the rest of the Megarians, so that the Athenians knew not to attack them. But at the most critical moment, after the conspirators were all covered in olive oil and were standing at their posts by the gates, 
that were about to be open. Their plot was betrayed by one among them to a group of oligarchic sympathizers in the city. This convinced the rest of the Megarians not only that the gate should remain closed, but also to add additional security on the city walls. This was a serious turn of events, because had the gates been opened, the city would have fallen to the Athenians before the Spartans could have sent an army. Although they lost their opportunity to take Megara, the Athenians still had a very good chance of taking the port of Nisii. So iron workers, stonemasons, and everything else that they required quickly rode out from Athens, and they started to build a counterwall around the harbor. The responsibility for the building of the ditch and the walls was divided among the army, with stones and bricks taken from the homes in the suburb, and some of the houses were also turned into battlements. At the same time, the fruit trees nearby were cut down so that their timber could be used to make palisades. This counter wall was completed by the afternoon of the following day, and very quickly the Peloponnesian garrison in Nisii found itself without provisions, which used to arrive daily from the upper city. In addition, since they were not anticipating any speedy relief from the Peloponnesians, and believing that the Megarians had flipped to the Athenian side, they capitulated their arms to the Athenians. This counter wall was completed by the afternoon of the following day, at which point the Peloponnesian garrison at Nisii found itself without provisions, which used to arrive daily from the upper city. In addition, since they were not anticipating any speedy relief from the Peloponnesians, and believing that the Megarians had flipped to the Athenian side, they quickly capitulated their arms, on the condition that they all should be allowed to be ransomed for a stipulated sum. However, their Spartan commander and all captured Spartans were to be taken as prisoners. Now that the harbor town of Nisii and its long walls up to Megara had been taken, the Athenian generals no doubt thought it was only a matter of time before the city itself capitulated. The Athenians immediately began to break down the long walls, and it seemed likely that they would have next moved on to the city of Megara itself, but the Spartan commander, Brasidas, had thwarted their intentions by appearing from the northwest with an army larger than they had. He happened to be near Corinth and Sicyon, gathering an army for his invasion of Thrace. More on that shortly. When he heard the events transpiring at Megara. So in order to save Nisia, he immediately sent to Boeotia, requesting reinforcements to meet him as quickly as possible at Tripodiscus, a Megarian village that sat on the slopes of Mount Geranea, between Megara and their other western port of Pegai. His own force consisted of 3,700 allies. 2,700 Corinthians, 600 Sicyonians, and 400 Philazians, and about 100 of his own troops that he had already levied. When he arrived at Tripodiscus, he received the unfortunate news that Nisii was already in Athenian hands, and so he decided to leave behind his main army and take 300 hand-picked men up to Megara, which he managed to do unobserved by the Athenians. But the Megarians were unwilling to admit him into the city. The Democrats there, feared that the Spartans would destroy them and restore the oligarchic exiles, while the oligarchic friends of the exiles feared that the arrival of the Spartans would cause stasis with the Democrats once again, which would give the Athenian army the opportunity to take the city. So both sides pragmatically preferred to await the results of the ensuing battle before admitting anyone into their city and declaring for one side. And so Brasidas and his 300 men went back to the rest of his army at Tripodiscus, Shortly thereafter, the Boeotian reinforcements arrived. The Boeotians knew that Athenian control of the Megarid would cut them off from their Peloponnesian allies, 
which would leave them open to attack. So they were willing to send a huge force of 2,200 hoplites and 600 cavalry to aid Brasidas. The combined army under Brasidas's command of about 6,000 Peloponnesian and Boeotian hoplites, plus 600 Boeotian cavalry, marched towards Megara, where they encountered the slightly smaller force of about 5,000 Athenian hoplites and 600 cavalry. The Athenians now had control of Nisii, had dismantled the long walls, and were thinking about moving on towards Megara. The arrival of Brasidas's army, though, caused them to alter their plans. Rather than force a battle, the Athenians declined to attack and instead chose to bide their time at Nisii. Brasidas too chose to wait because he was unwilling to surrender his advantageous position on the higher ground and preferred to let the Athenians march uphill to attack him, if they so pleased. He also thought that the presence of his larger army might eventually cause the Athenians to back down if he just sat and waited. He was correct too, as the only hostility that took place was a cavalry skirmish under the walls of Megara. The Boeotian cavalry had caught some Athenian lightly armed troops off guard and drove them back towards Nisii. But then they were swiftly countered by the Athenian cavalry, who successfully killed the Boeotian cavalry commander. Ultimately, the skirmish lasted for a long time, but was inconclusive, though it was technically an Athenian victory, as they killed and stripped the commander of the Boeotian cavalry and some of his comrades who had charged right up to Nisii. Their dead bodies were given back under truce, and then the Athenians set up a victory trophy. But regarding the action as a whole, neither side gained a decisive advantage as the Boeotian cavalry returned to their army and the Athenians to Nisii. Then, Brasidas formed up his army in full array as to challenge the Athenians to battle. The Athenians reciprocated, but after a long standoff, in which neither side was willing to initiate battle, the Athenians withdrew and marched their army back to Attica, but not before they left behind a garrison at Nisii. Despite not conquering the Megarid, as they had hoped, they presumably believed that most of their objectives had been attained, as the Athenians did manage to capture and fortify Nisii a strategic port on the Saronic Gulf. The Athenian generals must have believed that the risk was just too much to force a battle uphill against an opponent with superior numbers. Therefore, it was a calculated decision, because although a victory would have netted them Megara, a loss would have destroyed the core of Athens's hoplite forces at the time. Still, despite it technically being an Athenian victory, the friends of the exiled oligarchic Megarians proclaimed Brasidas as victor, and opened up the gates to him and his allies. The Peloponnesian and Boeotian forces stayed in and around the city, and Brasidas went about setting up a narrow oligarchy at Megara. The Democrats who took part in the plot fled the city, and the oligarchic exiles returned to power, after being forced to swear solemn oaths to not take any vengeance on anyone for what happened in the past. Afterwards, Brasidas dismissed and sent home his allied forces, and he went back to Corinth once again to prepare for his upcoming expedition to Thrace, which we will cover shortly. However, the oligarchs immediately broke their oaths by calling a review of the hoplites and choosing 100 of them who they believed had conspired with the Athenians. They brought them before the people and compelled a vote on their treason to be given openly. Naturally, then, they had them condemned and executed, as the other Megarians feared not wanting to look like conspirators themselves by voting against the wishes of those in power. This brought about a violent conclusion to Stasis and Megara, as the city was now firmly in the oligarchs' hands, 
and there was nobody left to oppose them. Henceforth, Megara would remain a loyal ally to Sparta, and an even more bitter enemy to Athens. However, for the Athenians, this was not a major setback, as they had not incurred many losses, and Megara was never theirs to begin with. Later that summer, the Athenians undertook another bold and complicated operation, this one against their other old nemesis, Boeotia, which had some similarities to their earlier attack on Megara, suggesting that the two initiatives might have been conceived at the same time as elements of a grand operation intended to change the course of the war. If it was, the failure in Megara did not deter Demosthenes and Hippocrates from trying to carry out the second part of their plan because immediately after his return to Athens from the Megarid, Demosthenes sailed with 40 ships to Naupactus in order to gather troops for an invasion of Boeotia. This was in concert with certain pro-Athenian Democrats in Boeotia, who had made contact with Athens and were hoping to change the constitutions in their cities to a democracy. In particular, a Theban exile named Theodorus was the chief mover. Their plan contained three elements that needed to work in unison. The first part involved dissident Western Boeotians who favored democracy on the Athenian model. The first part involved the dissident Western Boeotians who favored democracy on the Athenian model. They were to seize power in Siphi, which was the seaport city of Thespia on the Bay of Chrysi, as well as in Chaeronea, which was a bit west of Lake Copace. Some Phocians were also in the plot, since Chaeronea was a frontier city on the border of Phocis and Boeotia. The second and third parts of the plan involved the simultaneous positioning of forces by Demosthenes and Hippocrates. Demosthenes was to lead his western Greek allies on ships from Naupactus across the Gulf of Corinth to Siphi, which sat on the western coast of Boeotia, while Hippocrates was to invade Boeotia from the east with the main Athenian army. His main objective was to seize the sanctuary of Apollo at Delium, which sat near Tanagra on the eastern coast of Boeotia just across from the Athenian border and across the shoreline from Euboea. Success required that all three parts were to be done simultaneously so that the Boeotian army would be unable to concentrate its forces against a single enemy. And so once again, secrecy was vital. The anticipated result was that the capture of these Boeotian cities and the rise of democratic factions within them would weaken Theban resolve by leading to the overthrow of pro-Spartan oligarchies in other Boeotian cities, and ultimately the removal of Boeotia from its Spartan alliance. It is not clear whether there was enough support for Athens across Boeotia to make this happen. At the very least, though, if no revolutions would immediately follow, Athens would have fortresses on the borders of Boeotia for raiding expeditions, and as refuge sites where exiles could escape to or from where insurgents could cause revolts in the region, as they had already established at Pylos, Methana, and Kythera in the Peloponnese. After this plot was put into motion, Hippocrates set about building his army in Attica, and Demosthenes spent three months at Naupactus gathering the necessary troops from his allies in the west. There, Demosthenes found that their allies had already compelled Oneidae to join the athenian Acarnanian alliance, but a few pro-Peloponnesian city-states had resisted, including Salynthius and Agraiae, so he marched an army against and subdued them. Eventually, all of Acarnania now was united under the banner of Athens for this upcoming expedition. On the appointed day, which took place at the beginning of winter 424-423 BC, Demosthenes sailed with his army of Athenians and Arcananians to Siphi, 
but he had either mistakenly sailed too early or he sailed too fast, and so he landed at Siphi before Apocrates had arrived at Delium. And so the intended synchronism broke down. In addition, when he arrived at Siphi, he quickly realized that his plans had already been betrayed to the Spartans by a Phocian named Nicomachus, who in turn informed the Boeotians. So in anticipation, the Boeotians had sent armies to reinforce both Siphi and Chaeronea, and as a result, the conspirators were not able to implement their democratic takeovers in these cities. The Boeotians were able to do this since Demosthenes and Hippocrates were unable to coordinate their attacks simultaneously, and so they were able to provide a united front first against Demosthenes and then against Hippocrates. Since Demosthenes could not force his way into these well-defended cities, he was forced to withdraw, and as a result, the western part of the plan was a failure. Shortly thereafter, Hippocrates arrived in eastern Boeotia with an army of 7,000 Athenian hoplites and over 10,000 medic and allied lightly armed troops. He also brought along a large number of Athenians who came to build the intended fortifications, and so upon their arrival, these men immediately began to fortify the sanctuary of Apollo at Delium. But their seizure of the sacred ground of Apollo was a serious violation of Greek religious taboos. And this religious infraction represented yet another rejection of traditional practices that characterized this war. A trench was dug around the temple and anything that they could get their hands on was dismantled and used to build the ramparts. For example, they used the dirt that was removed from making the trench, the vines that were cut down from consecrated ground, and the stones and bricks that were removed from nearby houses. Once these were up, a few wooden towers were erected to reinforce gaps that existed in the sanctuary's own walls. After just three days, these fortifications were all but complete, so Hippocrates then set up a garrison and sent the rest of his army back to Athens, not knowing at all what had happened in the west. The army stopped about a mile east of Delium, where the hoplites set up a camp and waited for Hippocrates, while the lightly armed troops continued on the road to Athens. Their general was to join them once the final arrangements in the garrison had been finished. And so, these actions make it clear that the large army was present only to dissuade the Boeotians from attacking them while the fort was being constructed, and that Demosthenes and Hippocrates all along had never intended to risk such a massive land battle against an army of comparable size. They only wanted to establish strongholds on the western and eastern sides of Boeotia, just as they had done in the Peloponnese. While this was happening, the Boeotians had caught wind of the invasion, and so they assembled their forces under Pagandus of Thebes at Tanagra in order to challenge Hippocrates. From there, they marched towards Delium as fast as they could, but after they arrived, they learned that Delium had already been taken and that the bulk of the Athenian army was already on their way home and had just crossed Oropus on the border between Boeotia and Attica. And so the Boeotian army stopped and made camp at an unspecified location outside of Delium and the eleven Boatarchs, or the chief magistrates of the Boeotian League, then held a meeting to determine their next course of action. Nine of the eleven thought it was unwise for them to attack, as the enemy was no longer in Boeotia, and so they voted against battle. The only two who sought battle were Thebans. Because Thebes was the most powerful polis in the region, they contributed the largest proportion of men to the army, and in turn, they held four of the eleven Boatarch positions. One of the four Thebans, though, was Pagandus. Not only did he disagree with the majority opinion here, but he also served as the commander-in-chief of the Boeotian forces, so he had a lot more sway than just one of eleven. 
Little is known of his life, but he is mentioned by Pindar as having been born to a noble Theban family, and we know that he was in his early 60s at the Battle of Delium. So he was an elder noble man, likely with a lot of battle experience and the respect of his troops. So following this meeting, despite the majority opinion, he called together all of his men in order to prevent them from leaving at once. Addressing the entire Boeotian army, he urges them of the necessity to attack the Athenians right now. He says that the fortifications at Delium need to be repulsed for two reasons. First, regardless of their current location, the Athenians would eventually return and use Delium as a base for further invasions. And so they must strike now when the enemy is the most vulnerable and not expecting an attack. Second, they must defend their own soil and avenge the sacrilege that has befallen the Temple of Apollo by fighting more fiercely to protect their lands and homes than ever before. Evidently, Pagandus was a fiery and persuasive speaker, and his reputation and rhetoric were able to convince the disparate Boeotian contingents to unify and to attack the Athenians at once. It was now late in the day, and the Boeotians quickly broke up their camp, and Pagandus moved them into a position closer to the main Athenian army, which was still camped about a mile east of Delium. But he halted them behind a hill so that his army would be hidden from the enemy's view. Meanwhile, when Hippocrates had learned of the approach of the Boeotian army, he sent notification ahead to his encamped troops to form into battle lines, while he set out to join them. He also left behind a small force of 300 cavalry at Delium in order to guard the place in case of an attack, and to fall upon the Boeotians during the battle if a good opportunity arose. As for the Boeotians, when everything had been arranged to their satisfaction, Pagandus led his men over the hill. The exact location of battle is still a mystery, as the landscape is only described in regards to its impact on the tactics involved in the battle. All we know is that the terrain was very hilly, and it was from one of these hills that the Boeotians would launch their attack. We also know that between the two battle lines ran ravines on either side, creating a narrow theater for combat that greatly hindered one side from outflanking the other. In terms of the number of combatants, the Boeotians had 7,000 hoplites, 1,000 cavalry, 500 peltasts, and 10,000 lightly armed troops. In keeping with their position as the leader of the Boeotian League, the right wing was formed by troops from Thebes, and the Thebans stacked themselves 25 men deep rather than the usual eight. This was their traditional way of battle arrangement in order to give them more pushing power and punch. The rest lined up in the standard fashion of eight men deep, as the center was made up of men from Haliartus, Coronea, and those from around Lake Copace and the left wing was formed by troops from Thespia, Tanagra, and Orchomenus. Finally, the Boeotian cavalry and lightly armed troops were distributed evenly on the flanks. The Athenians had about the same number of hoplites. They lined up at the usual depth of eight men, with an unspecified number of cavalry distributed equally on their two wings as well, likely of similar strength to the Boeotians. Unfortunately though, the Athenians did not have any, or at least very many, lightly armed troops, as they had been dismissed earlier and were en route to Athens, as we mentioned. Because of the asymmetry in their deployment, the Theban right wing would be deeper and more powerful than the Athenian left would be, but that also means that they would have less lines horizontally and would be vulnerable to being flanked. And so success for the Thebans depended on a swift victory from their right. At the same time, their cavalry and lightly armed troops would have to prevent the Athenians from turning that flank. 
This unique deployment by the Theban general Pagandus shows his ingenuity and explains the subsequent unfolding and progress of the battle. Once the armies were in battle alignment, Hippocrates passed through the Athenian ranks and offered a few words of encouragement. He told them not to fear an engagement on foreign soil, and explained that in reality, the battle was in defense of Athens, because, quote, if we win, the Peloponnesians, without the Boeotian cavalry, will never invade Attica again, and in one battle, we will conquer their land and free our own, end quote. He was in the middle of giving his speech to his men, though, when the Boeotians charged unexpectedly down the hill, shouting their pay on as they closed upon the Athenian army. This quick and unexpected appearance of the Boeotian army sent shockwaves through the Athenian ranks, but quickly the officers were able to settle down the surprised Athenians, and despite the disadvantageous landscape, Hippocrates ordered his men to charge up the hill on the run. As the two sides approached, the ravines on either side of the battlefield hampered the cavalry and lightly armed troops, which was to the advantage of the Athenians, since they were numerically inferior in that regard. Running uphill amidst the barrage of Boeotian peltasts, the Athenian hoplites clashed shields with their enemy, and both sides engaged each other with the utmost tenacity. Those from Thespia, Tanagra, and Orchomenus on the Boeotian left were up against the enemy's best troops on the Athenian right, and they were quickly overwhelmed. Eventually, as Thucydides reports, the Boeotian left wing was on the brink of defeat, as only the Thespian contingent stood its ground. The victorious Athenian line fell into confusion, though, as it circled around the Thespian contingent and surrounded it. Some of the Athenian hoplites fought and killed one another as their forces rolled up the Boeotian left, because when they met at the other end, they mistook their countrymen for the enemy in the fog of war. This was history's first documented incident of friendly fire, and it is believed that the incident occurred in part because the combatants wore no uniforms or national identifying emblems. In particular, no city-state-specific shields were in use at this time, and these do not seem to have become standard until the following century. In any case, at the same time as the Athenian right was turning the Boeotian left, the Thebans on the Boeotian right weren't progressing as quickly as they had hoped. Despite the depth of the Theban formation, which permitted them to shove the thinner Athenian line backwards, the Athenians opposite them fought unwaveringly, and even with the early death of Hippocrates, the Athenian left only gave ground slowly, and they definitely did not break and run, as was expected. This was a moment of great peril for the Boeotians, as the Athenian right was on the verge of rolling up the Boeotian left before the Theban right could do the same to the Athenian left. It was at this point that Pagandus chose to do something utterly unprecedented in the history of Greek warfare. In order to support the decimated Boeotian left wing, he called in a reserve force of several hundred cavalry, whose mere creation itself was also unprecedented. Before the battle kicked off, he had kept this force behind the hill, out of sight of the Athenians, and so they eventually reappeared at this most opportune moment behind the Athenian right that was turning the Boeotian left. This not only broke the momentum of the Athenian charge, but also sent panic through their ranks, and they quickly turned and ran. This was perhaps fortunate for Pagandus, as Greek cavalry at this point was made up of lightly armed aristocrats riding horses without saddles or stirrups, and so they were no match for a company of hoplites face to face. Nevertheless, the use of the cavalry reserve had broken the Athenian right. At the same time, the mounting Theban pressure on the Boeotian right wing finally burst through the Athenian left and sent them fleeing also in chaos. 
This caused a general Athenian rout, because when their center saw that their two wings both had been defeated, they also turned and fled. The Athenian army was now a mob in flight, as some made for Delium, some southeastwards for Europus, and others southwards for Mount Parnasse, or wherever they had hopes of safety. The Boeotian cavalry that pursued after the fleeing Athenian hoplites was boosted by the late arrival of a contingent of Apontian Locrian horsemen. In a scene that would be more fittingly described as a hunt, many Athenians were cut down from behind. Only the setting of the sun prevented an outright massacre from taking place, as the darkness allowed the mass of fugitives to escape more easily than they would have done otherwise. Altogether, about 500 Boeotian and 1,000 Athenian hoplites had been killed, including the Athenian general Hippocrates. These were the heaviest casualties inflicted upon the Athenians in the Ten-Year War. In addition, without giving specifics, Thucydides says a great number of lightly armed troops also had died. Since no Athenian lightly armed troops were able to take part in the battle, we can only assume that such casualties were caused later by pursuing Boeotian and Locrian cavalry, which caught up with these retreating Athenians, either because they had received news of the battle and were trying to return to Delium, or because some of the Boeotian and Locrian cavalry pursued after them into Attica. In a role reversal from the Battle of Potidaea some eight years earlier, the philosopher Socrates, fighting in the hoplite ranks, might well have been killed had he not been rescued by a young Alcibiades fighting in the cavalry. Plato in a symposium has Alcibiades give the following account of the retreat of the Athenians at Delium, and Socrates' own actions there. Quote, Furthermore, men, it was worthwhile to behold Socrates when the army retreated in flight from Delium. For I happened to be there on horseback, and he was a hoplite. The soldiers were then en route, and while he and Lachis were retreating together, I came upon them by chance, and as soon as I saw them, I at once urged the two of them to take heart, and I said I would not leave them behind. I had an even finer opportunity to observe Socrates there than I had at Potidaea, for I was less in fear because I was on horseback. First of all, how much more sensible he was than Lachis. And secondly, it was my opinion, Aristophanes, and this point is yours, that walking there just as he does here in Athens, stalking like a pelican, his eyes darting from side to side, quietly on the lookout for friends and foes, he made it plain to everyone, even at a great distance, that if one touches this real man, he will defend himself vigorously. Consequently, he went away safely, both he and his comrade, for when you behave in war as he did, then they just about do not even touch you. Instead, they pursue those who turn in headlong flight. End quote. Although some had escaped to other places, as we mentioned, most of the Athenians had managed to return to the fort at Delium. On the next day, a garrison was left behind to guard their fortifications, and the rest of the troops returned home by sea. At the same time, the Boeotians set up a victory trophy, took up their own dead, and stripped the bodies of the enemies, all in accordance to custom. Then, they left a detachment of troops to keep guard over the dead corpses of their enemy, while the rest of the Boeotian army retired to Tanagra, where they would begin to take measures for attacking Delium. Meanwhile, a herald came from the Athenians, requesting permission to retrieve their dead, again in accordance to custom. But the Boeotians in turn sent a herald with a message that they refused to return their dead until the Athenians evacuate Delium. Their argument was simple. The Athenians were transgressing the universal law of the Hellenes, which protected temples and sacred land from being fortified. By fortifying the temple of Apollo at Delium, and by using a nearby sacred spring for their own personal uses. 
And so the Boeotians argued that the Athenians' actions here negated their sacred obligations to return the Athenian dead. An Athenian herald was then sent forth with a reply that the land was now theirs, and was now sacred to them, because they were saving it from the Boeotians. He then called the Boeotian refusal to return their dead a greater sacrilege. In fact, there was nothing more sacrilegious than the improper care for the dead. Still, the Boeotians again refused to give up the dead until the Athenians vacated Boeotian territory, and the two sides were at an impasse. For two weeks, there was no action. But during this time, the Boeotians had sent for reinforcements from their allies. In particular, they were joined at Tanagra by an extra 2,000 hoplites from Corinth, the Peloponnesian garrison that had evacuated Nisii, some Megarians, and an unspecified number of lightly armed troops and slingers from the Malian Gulf. With these forces, combined with his Boeotian army, Pagandus now felt that he had the necessary resources to force the Athenians out of Boeotia. And so he marched his combined army towards Delium from Tanagra. When they arrived, their initial attack on the Athenian fortifications was ferocious, as they tried any which way that they could to scale the walls and force their way in. Ultimately, though, they were repulsed, so they had to turn to Plan B, which was to burn the Athenians out. The Boeotians had constructed a strange device, which, according to the description in Thucydides, seems to have been a kind of primitive but giant flamethrower. It was made from the hollowing out of a large wooden beam, which was then plated with thin pieces of iron. On the front end of this beam, using metal chains, they hung a cauldron that was filled with coals, sulfur, and pitch. The beam was then laid across a number of wooden carts, which they used to move it up to a particularly flammable portion of the fortification's walls. When it was in place, it was set aflame in the back end, and after the fire spread forth to the front end and into the cauldron, an even larger fire erupted, immediately spreading to the ramparts. When the Athenians noticed that the walls around the sanctuary were on fire and were beginning to crumble, they fled Delium. Most managed to make it to the sea, get on board their ships, and return home to Athens, though the Boeotians, presumably the cavalry, were able to kill an unspecified number in the process, and 200 were taken prisoner. And so after a siege of 17 days, Delium was once again in control of the Boeotians, and at that point, the bodies of Hippocrates and the other men were finally returned to the Athenians. Shortly thereafter, Demosthenes and his forces finally arrived at Delium, but the lack of communication between him and Hippocrates meant that his arrival was too little and too late. After receiving news that the Athenians had been defeated, that they were in a full-on retreat back to Attica, and that Delium was now in Boeotian hands, he led his forces back to their ships, and they sailed once again through the Corinthian Gulf. Along the way, he landed near Sicyon on the Peloponnesian coastline, but was quickly defeated in a small skirmish. Presumably, he sailed back to Napoctis for the rest of the winter, or he could have gone back to Athens, as the sources do not make any mention of it. The Athenian defeat at Delium was a setback to their ambitions, but it was by no means a devastating loss. Sure, they had suffered many casualties, but Attica was still secure from Peloponnesian or Boeotian invasions, and the Athenians still held control over the seas. On the other hand, Pagandus's victory at Delium helped guarantee Boeotian security and prevent further Athenian incursions into their territory for the remainder of the Peloponnesian War. In addition to showing an innovative use of a new technology, the Theban commander won a great victory by implementing the use of tactical changes in battle for what most historians agree is the first time in recorded history. Clearly, his military innovations were far advanced for their time. 
In the previous centuries, battles between Greek city-states were relatively simple encounters between massed formations of hoplites, where cavalry played no important role and all depended on the unity and force of the massed ranks of the phalanx, pushing against their opponent. But in the Battle of Delium, Pagandas made use of deeper ranks, reserves, cavalry interventions, light-armed skirmishers, and gradual changes in tactics during the battle. The Thebans also made use of a group of 300 elite hoplites, who were apparently specially trained and from the wealthiest class. This is the first instance, on the historical record at least, of this type of professional corps being employed by Thebes. Altogether, this is evidence of the growing complexity of Greek warfare, which accelerated during the Peloponnesian War. These novelties would be later exploited in the more famous Theban victories in the following century. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Aegean, during the summer of 424 BC, a group of Mytilenian and other lesbian exiles had set out with hired mercenaries from the Peloponnese to take the city-state of Rhodium, which sat on the Anatolian coastline across the Thracian Chersonese. Presumably these men were exiled, either voluntarily or involuntarily, during the Mytilenian revolt three years earlier. In any case, the people of Rhodium offered them 2,000 Phokian staters not to take their city. A Phokian stator was a unit of currency thought to be equal to 24 Attic drachmas, which would make this total sum equal to 8 talents. So they took the bribe and then marched into the interior. Their plan was to retake all of the cities in the northern Troad that formerly were possessed by Mytilene, but was now held by the Athenians. After they crossed Mount Ida, they attacked the city-state of Antandros, which they were able to take by treachery. The vicinity of Antandros to Mount Ida made it the perfect base for the collection of timber and the building of ships, which they intended to use to ravage their nearby former home of Lesbos and make themselves masters of the Aeolian cities on the coastline. But while they were about to fortify their new base at Antandros, they attracted the attention of three Athenian generals, Lamachus, Demodocus, and Aristides who in ten ships were engaged in collecting tribute around the Hellespont and Black Sea region. Thucydides, though, only sparingly mentioned specific missions of Athenian generals being sent to collect tribute, which was an annual thing. And so scholars have presumed that there must have been a reassessment and increase of the tribute for that year, which could be backed by a large inscription of uncertain date that indicates great increases in tribute all around and including cities in the Black Sea. In any case, when the Athenian generals got word of what the Mytilenian exiles were doing, they got together a force from their allies and sailed to Antandros to prevent them from fortifying it. After they defeated them in battle, the Athenians retook the city. Not long afterwards, Lamachus sailed the ten ships into the Black Sea, but while he was anchoring in the Calyx River, which sat in the territory of Heraclea on the northern Bithynian shoreline, a massive amount of rainfall poured down that caused a huge flood and destroyed his ships. So he had to lead his troops by land through Bithynia, westwards to Chalcedon, on the Asiatic side of the Bosporus. Presumably, Lamachus was able to secure new ships from Chalcedon or another Athenian ally in the Aegean, link up with the other generals, finish collecting the tribute, and then sail back to Athens. After the Athenian successes at Pylos, Methana, and Kythera, many Spartans began to lose a desire for continuing the war as they were unable to rely upon invasions of Attica as their main offensive weapon. On the other hand, as we have seen, these successes emboldened the Athenians to achieve new heights. However, Athens' sound defeat by the Boeotians at Delium dampened their high spirits. Their loss also had political ramifications, as it encouraged the Spartans to continue hold out after victory had seemed impossible just a year earlier. 
In addition, future Athenian losses farther north would give further strength to the Spartans' hope for a victory, even while Spartan soldiers remained captive in Athens. Specifically, appeals for help arrived in the summer of 424 BC from Halkidian and Bodian cities in the Thracian Halkidiki, which were still in revolt with Athens. This provided the Spartans with an opportunity to throw the Athenians on the defensive and to regain the initiative in the war once again, as they now began to embrace what scholars call the adventurous strategy. Basically, the Athenian harassment of the Peloponnese from Pylos, Methana, and Kythera was becoming so unbearable that the Spartans were ready to try a new strategy to relieve the situation. Athens's hold on the Halkidiki had always been fragile, and certain cities were still in open rebellion since the beginning of the war. No doubt, the increase in the tribute assessment that the Athenians had voted on in the previous winter had intensified discontent there, among other cities as well. Furthermore, the Halkidic towns were joined in their appeal by Perdiccas II of Macedon, who sent a message to Sparta asking for an army to be sent, which he hoped to use against one of his own rivals, Arhabius, the king of the Lincestian Macedonians. Perdiccas also had his apprehensions about the Athenians, as we have discussed many times, and so he's always trying to flip sides with his on-again, off-again allies. Although the Spartan authorities were willing to provide military aid to their allies in the north, they were not willing to dispatch the Spartan army to do the fighting so far away, when many were still prisoners in Athens, and the rest were needed at home in case of a helot revolt. In fact, the only Spartiate they would send was the commander, and he would need to raise an army almost from scratch, using Thracian and Macedonian money. A dynamic Spartan officer, Brasidas, jumped at this opportunity, and so he volunteered himself for what was most likely his first campaign as the sole commander of an army. As we have already discussed, he was an admired and decorated soldier who already boasted a distinguished military record during the war as an officer and as a military advisor. Most importantly, he fought at and was wounded during the Spartan defeat at Pylos, and so he was hell-bent on restoring Spartan prestige. Therefore, he was definitely the energy behind the planning and execution of what would become his famous Thracian campaign. He was given the rare autonomous power to make decisions that would otherwise have needed authority from Sparta. He had permission to make his own alliances, wage his own battles, and negotiate with whomever he wanted. Basically, as long as he was victorious, and it cost Sparta nothing, he was given free reign. With this in mind, and knowing full well that he would not be able to take any Spartan hoplites with him in his army, he designed a plan that provided him with the necessary number of soldiers for his march to Thrace. It also enabled the Spartans to alleviate the fear of a helot revolt that seemed likely to explode forth at a time when the Athenians and Mycenaeans at Pylos were stirring up trouble. The helots were all invited to pick out the best among them who had distinguished themselves in the wars. These men were promised their freedom, the thought being that those who would put their name forward in the hope of gaining freedom would be the most high-spirited and the most apt to rebel in the future. Around 2,000 helots stepped forward and the Spartans had 1,300 of them killed, though no one ever knew how each of them perished. The other 700, also unaware of this Spartan atrocity, were gathered up and equipped to serve as hoplites in Brasidas' forthcoming Thracian campaign, with the promise that they would receive their freedom after the fact. Thucydides then makes some offhand comments about the wise conduct of Brasidas, which would help Sparta years later in getting the allies of Athens to flip sides. He says that Brasidas was the first Spartan who went out and showed himself to be such a good man at all points that soon the Greeks began to think the rest of the Spartans were just like him. Specifically here, he uses the phrase after the events in Sicily, 
referring to the Sicilian expedition a decade later, which sheds light on the date of the composition of this section of his history. For our discussion on the various problems associated with that, check out episode 88. Brasidas then led these 700 armed hoplites to the northern Peloponnese in search of more recruits. It was when they were in the vicinity of Sicyon and Corinth that he received notification of what was transpiring at Megara with the Democrats and the Athenians. So after supporting the Megarian oligarchs, as we mentioned earlier, he returned back to Corinth and finalized his plans. He readied his force of 1,700 men, the 700 liberated helots armed as hoplites, plus 1,000 Peloponnesian mercenaries. From Corinth, he marched them through Boeotia to the Spartan colony of Heraclea and Trachis. The sources do not mention if the Athenians or any other hostile forces tried to stop him, so it must have been an uneventful march. But his trek through Thessaly on to Macedon was a much different story. In fact, it was very dangerous for an enemy army to march through Thessaly without a native escort, as the people were friendly to Athens and generally hostile to Sparta. Thucydides says that if the Thessalians had a constitutional government, there is no way that Brasidas would have gotten through. But they were ruled by a loose collection of oligarchies. And so, since Brasidas had a few oligarchic friends at Pharsalus, they were able to send him five guides in order to escort his army through their lands. They were met by these five men at the Anipius River, which was just north of Heraclea and Trachis. From there, they began to escort them northwards as they marched through Thessalian territory. But Brasidas and his army soon found that they met some resistance, as a certain group of Thessalians from the opposite party tried to halt his progress and complained to the Pharsalian guides that they were making such actions without getting the consent of the Thessalian government. But his Thessalian escorts and Brasidas brilliantly used sly diplomacy, something the Spartans were not typically adept at. One of the guides said that they were only friends escorting an unexpected visitor and Brasidas added that he had not come as an enemy, but as a friend to all Thessalians, reassuring them that his army was not intended for them, but was here with the sole intention of fighting the Athenians. He said, with a touch of manipulation, that although the Spartans were at war with the Athenians, he knew of no quarrel between them and the Thessalians that would prevent the two nations from traversing peacefully through each other's territory. However, if they wished, he would not continue his march, but then he would have to notify the Spartan authorities that such restrictions were now in place. With this answer, they backed down and went away, most likely to amass a stronger force. So Brasidas took the advice of his escorts, and they sped up without halting in case a greater force would gather again to prevent them. They managed to reach Pharsalus in just one day, which was about a march of over 20 miles, and they encamped on the Apidanus River that runs by it. The following day, they continued north until they reached the small town of Dion, which sat at the foothills of Mount Olympus. It was at this point that they were now safe, as they were in the territory of Perdiccas, and so as Thessalian escorts turned back home. Brasidas' arrival in Macedon immediately prompted the Athenians to declare war against Perdiccas, whom they regarded as the author behind the expedition, and they began to keep a closer watch on their allies in the north. At the same time, great enthusiasm was sparked within Perdiccas. Although Brasidas and his men wanted to recuperate from their long march through the middle of the hot Greek summer, he immediately wanted to combine his own forces with those of the Peloponnesians. Brasidas relented, and so they quickly set out northwestwards to fight against Arhabaeus. He was the king of the Lynchestai, a northwestern Greek tribe that belonged to the Malazian tribal state of Epirus. 
The region of Lancastia was ruled by wealthy kings who traced their origins to the Bacchiaidae that were expelled from Corinth in the 7th century BC, which we discussed way back in episode 16. At the time, Perdiccas wanted to subordinate the Lancastii under the control of the Argia dynasty, which was the ruling family of Lower Macedon. However, when they arrived at the pass leading into Lancastia, the relationship between Brasidas and Perdiccas began to splinter. Brasidas was a pragmatist at heart, and he knew that he needed as many allies as possible if he was going to overthrow the Athenian influence in Thrace. So he made it be known that instead of fighting, he wished to persuade Arhabaeus to become an ally of Sparta. Apparently, Arhabaeus had already made overtures indicating his willingness to let Brasidas arbitrate the dispute between he and Perdiccas. In addition, Halkidian envoys who accompanied Brasidas had warned him to be cautious with Perdiccas, as he was just as likely to flip sides to the Athenians once again. This all led to a quarrel between Brasidas and Perdiccas, and the Macedonian king angrily said that he didn't bring him along to arbitrate, but to subdue his enemy, and that while he was paying for half of his army, it was a breach of trust for Brasidas to parley with his enemy. Nevertheless, Brasidas held firm and disregarded Perdiccas's wishes, accepting Arhabaeus's offer to parley with him. After these discussions, Brasidas withdrew his forces from the battle without invading the territory of the Lancastians. The deeply annoyed Perdiccas was true to his word, and so he reduced his military support for Brasidas from one half to one third of his forces. He didn't pull all of his funding, though, because he still wished to see Brasidas have success in causing pro-Athenian cities to revolt in Thrace. Leaving the angered Macedonian king behind, Brasidas then marched his army eastwards towards the Halkidiki. Upon his arrival, he was joined by a confederate delegation of Halkidians in order to help him persuade more cities to join the revolt against Athens. Their first target was the Andrian colony of Ancanthos, on the eastern coast of the Halkidiki where he arrived just before the start of the grape harvest. The citizens of Ancanthos were divided into two parties on the question of receiving him. Despite these factional quarrels, Brasidas did not try to take the town by assault or treachery. Instead, he attempted to persuade the citizens to join his cause. The importance of the grape harvest on the Ancanthian economy was enough for even the most cynical of Ancanthians to let Brasidas enter the city and plead his case, though his army had to remain outside the city's walls. Brasidas then gives a speech, and Thucydides says, either ironically or dismissively, that he made similar speeches elsewhere, and that he was not a bad speaker for a Spartan. The Spartans were stereotypically notorious for speaking laconically, that is bluntly, ungraciously, and with few words. But Brasidas was apparently different, as he had the unique skill of being able to blend overt diplomacy with underlying threats and some blatant lies to manipulate the discussions in his favor. In his speech to the Encanthians, he insists that he has come as a liberator and protector against Athens, reviving the claim that Sparta was fighting the war to free the Greeks, and that he did not come to substitute one master for another, or to support one party against another. He then states that he is surprised to see that the gates of Encanthos had not been opened for him, because the Spartans were under the belief that the Encanthians were their allies. There was no official alliance between the two city-states, so he was just using an emotional exploitation here, similar to the one he used on the Thessalians. He speculates that because the Encanthians didn't respect their alliance, and instead shut up their gates to him, they must be under the belief that the Athenians would easily defeat the Spartans in this war, and so they chose the side of Athens. 
If that is the case, though, they are mistaken, as he brags about how the Athenian army was not able to defeat him at Megara. He then guarantees that Sparta, unlike the Athenians, will respect Anchanthus's independence and will not interfere in their own internal affairs. But following all of this flowery rhetoric, he concludes his speech by threatening to ravage their crops just before the start of the grape harvest if they refuse to cooperate in his Hellenic liberation. Afterwards, Brasidas was dismissed from the discussions, and the Anchantheans internally debated the question in hand, as rebuttals were heard on both sides. Then they voted by a secret ballot, and unsurprisingly, they chose to revolt from Athens and to go over to Sparta, because as Thucydides puts it, they were seduced by Brasidas's words, and they were afraid for their grapes that had not yet been harvested. Summer was now coming to a close, and Brasidas and his army were invited into Anchantus. Others soon followed their example, such as Stagirus, which, like Anchantus, was a colony of Andros. The Stagirans sent messengers to Brasidas announcing their intentions, and momentum was now established in the north for the Spartan cause, while the aforementioned Athenian disaster in Boeotia was about to take place. At about the same time as the fall of Delium, over the winter of 424-423 BC, Satalkes, the king of the Odrysian Thracians, was defeated in battle while campaigning against the Triballi and was killed. His nephew Suthis succeeded him to the throne. We will return back to Suthis and the Odrysian Thracians in a future episode. With their loss at Delium, and with Brasidas stirring revolt in Thrace, the tide had definitely turned against the Athenians. Things took a further turn for the worse in the winter of 424-423 BC, when Brasidas made a play for Anthipolis, an Athenian colony in Thrace on the Strymon River. Amphipolis was a critical projection of Athenian power in the north, as its important economic and strategic position protected their nearby valuable forests of timber and gold and silver mines, which supplied much of the Athenian war fund, and controlled both the sea passage on the Strymon River and the land route east to the Hellespont and the Bosporus. Brasidas believed that the fall of Amphipolis, which was his principal target all along, would surely lead to a general rebellion in the entire area, as it sat atop a hill at a sharp U-bend of the Strymon River. The city was defended by water on three sides, and was enclosed by an eastern wall, effectively turning the city into an island. A bridge across the river gave access to the city from the west, but a small fleet in the water could easily defend this point. In fact, Amphipolis had its own harbor town, called Eon, which sat at the mouth of the river, about three miles south of the city. At this point, a fleet was stationed at Eon under the command of the Athenian general Thucydides. While the city of Amphipolis itself was defended by an Athenian garrison that was commanded by the Athenian general Euclid. However, as we discussed in episode 89, Amphipolis contained a mixed multitude among its population, with only a few Athenians present. Some of these were from Argilus, another colony of Andros, whose people were secretly hostile to Athens, as well as other accomplices in the city, who had been won over by Perdiccas or the Halkidians. So Amphipolis was by no means a firmly entrenched Athenian city. On one particular night in December, Brasidas and his Thracian allies set out from Arn in the Halkidiki. If Thucydides' account is to be believed, even with blustering storms and snow in the air, they marched very quickly, covering around 40 miles or 65 kilometers in just 24 hours. In the dead of the following night, they arrived at Argilus, which sat a little bit southwest of Amphipolis and on the western side of the Strymon River. 
The Argilians immediately declared the rebellion from Athens, so this must have been pre-planned. Wanting to catch everyone at Amphipolis by surprise, Brasidas and his army immediately set off with Argilians as their guide, and before dawn, they reached the bridge over the Strymon that sat on the city's western edge. The snowstorm was still blowing, which allowed Brasidas' forces to catch the small detachment of guards by surprise. In addition, there were treasonous guards in their ranks, which was especially imperative because due to the weather and the speed at which they arrived at Amphipolis, Brasidas had no real means to seize the walls by force, other than the reliance upon internal dissidents to betray the city. And so with these, they easily seized the bridge and the land up to the city walls, taking many prisoners from the shocked Amphipolitans, who had many of their homes outside the city. This was a complete surprise to the people inside the city, as they awoke the following morning, and quarrels quickly broke out between the different nationalities of those living inside the walls, as nobody trusted one another, thinking that the people of one city-state or another had betrayed the city to the Spartans. Thucydides believes that because of this, if Brasidas had stormed the city immediately, he could have taken it easily and with very little resistance. But Brasidas judged that he had too small of an army and wasn't well equipped to take a walled city without resulting in significant casualties. So instead, he established himself outside the city and pillaged the countryside. He hoped that by doing this, he could exploit the atmosphere of fear within the city and force its subjugation without any more bloodshed. So he patiently waited for a signal from his friends inside that it was safe to enter before he continued. However, this plan backfired as it allowed the public to gather themselves and to come up with a resolve to resist. The Amphipolitans prepared their defenses, and the party opposed to the traitors were large enough to ensure that the gates were not immediately thrown open. At the same time, Euclid sent for help from Thucydides, who with 70 ships was the general tasked with commanding the fleet in the Thracian region. He was supposed to be at Eon, which was less than three miles away near the mouth of the Strymon, as we mentioned, but instead he had stationed himself at the island of Thassos, about a half-day's sail away. Thucydides offers no explanation for why he was there and not at Eon. Whatever the reason, when he received the message, he immediately set sail at once, but his delay in arriving was a critical factor in the outcome. Though he did not know his location, in order to capture the city before Thucydides and his Athenian ships had time to arrive, Brasidas' only chance was to capitalize on the fear of its citizens. So he proposed relatively moderate terms of surrender to the Amphipolitans and to the Athenians in the city, by offering to let everyone who wished to stay to keep their property with full rights of citizenship. He also promised safe passage to those who did not wish to stay, allowing them to leave freely and giving them a five-day window to gather up their property without fear of harm. In return, Amphipolis would come over to the Spartan alliance. And so the Amphipolitans mauled over his offer, but their decision was a simple one. They knew that if the city was taken by force, the citizen body would be either exiled forced into slavery, or even put to death. Basically, it came down to whether they thought that the Athenians and their 70 ships would be able to save them in time. The people ultimately believed that they couldn't. In addition, only a small number of the citizens were Athenians, since the majority came from various places, and many were worried about their relatives outside the walls that had been captured. So the bulk of the inhabitants now began to change their minds. At this point, seeing that the general mood had changed, 
Those in cahoots with Brasidas openly advocated for their surrender, and despite protests from Euclid, the Amphipolitans voted to capitulate. Brasidas and his army were admitted into the city, which they had brought over to the Spartan side in less than 24 hours. Just a few hours later, Thucydides arrived at the nearby port of Eon in enough time to keep it in Athenian hands, but not soon enough to save Amphipolis. Thucydides makes sure to say that if he had not been so prompt in getting to Eon and securing it, it too would have fallen to Brasidas by the morning. That's because on the next day, Brasidas suddenly sailed with a number of boats down the Strymon to Eon to see if he could seize the entrance to the river. At the same time, he led a dual assault on the city by land and by sea. But the Athenians managed to hold firm and stave him off on both accounts. And so Brasidas had to return to Amphipolis, content with arranging matters there. The loss of Amphipolis was devastating for Athens, and it caused great alarm back home as they not only lost a city valuable for the timber it afforded for shipbuilding and the tribute money that it brought in, but with it in Spartan hands, there also would be a barrier now for Athenian movement across Thrace. So in anger, Thucydides was recalled to Athens and put on trial. The Athenians clearly felt as if he was responsible for gross negligence, and so he was exiled for losing the city, although he was away at the time of its capture. A much later source, Marcellinus, in his Life of Thucydides, says that his exile came on a motion of Cleon, and that the charge was prodosia, or treason, which, like bribery, was an accusation often leveled against unsuccessful generals. This would make sense and explain some of his hostile treatment towards Cleon. But regardless of who proposed it, Thucydides was sentenced to life in exile. This meant that he was in exile for the last 20 years of the war, which played a large factor in what form his history of the Peloponnesian War would take. Although he was no longer able to hear speeches delivered in the Ecclesia, or to hear the latest rumors in the Agora, his outs with the home government gave him the freedom to have conversations with both sides of the war, and so he could include more non-Athenian perspectives. For example, he seems to know a great deal about Brasidas' thinking, so perhaps the two men got to know each other while he was in exile. Either way, more importantly, since he was freed from civic responsibilities, he had the time to write his history, and the experiences of being turned against by his fellow citizens would deeply shape his beliefs as a critic of democracy. Some scholars, though, believe that Thucydides was partially or entirely responsible for the capture of Amphipolis, because he was not at Eon where he should have been. However, the problem in determining his guilt is compounded by the fact that the only useful account of the whole affair was written by Thucydides himself. In addition, Thucydides never directly discusses the sentence that was passed on him, and he gives a very thin narrative of the whole affair, likely to downplay its significance overall, and particularly his role in it. But he can't just ignore it completely, because it was a devastating blow to the Athenians. So how he does frame it makes it clear that he felt that he was not to blame, but that it was Euclid and those in the city of Amphipolis itself. Still, he never mentioned why he was at Thassos rather than at Eon. The penalty of exile, though, seems excessive, as most disgraced generals were typically just fined, and particularly because there is no mention that Euclid was brought to trial or condemned as well. In fact, his fate is not even mentioned in any of the sources. It's likely, though, that he fled from Amphipolis after it capitulated. Whoever was to blame, with the fall of Amphipolis, Brasidas became a magnet for resistance to the Athenians. By offering such generosity to the inhabitants of Amphipolis, other cities began to not fear the ramifications of surrender anymore. 
And so surrender was now a much more beneficial option than resistance. And so more Halkidian representatives began to send secret messengers to Brasidas, inviting him to bring their cities over to the Spartan alliance. For example, immediately after the capture of Amphipolis, Myrkinos, an Edonian city situated just north of Amphipolis on the Strymon, and the Thasian colonies of Galapsis and Osimi on the Aegean coastline also defected. The Athenians now feared that Brastus's moderation and his declaration for the liberation of the Greeks would lead to a widespread revolt in the north. So they sent out garrison forces to Thrace, at such a short notice and in the middle of winter, to quickly support the remaining towns still loyal to their cause. In response, Brasidas appealed to Sparta for more troops to reinforce his campaign, and he showed admirable enterprise in making preparations for building triremes on the Strymon. But his victory was largely ignored by his motherland. Thucydides says that the Spartans, quote, did not give him any help, partly because of the jealousy of the leading men, and partly because they wanted to get back the men from the island and end the war, end quote. Jealousy no doubt played some part here, but the real disagreement on policy was the more significant factor. Ever since the capture of the Spartiates, a faction favoring negotiated peace had dominated at Sparta, and so there was a constant tension between those like Brasidas, who saw these campaigns as implementing Sparta's stated war aim of liberating the Greeks, and the Spartan authorities who saw them as a means of putting pressure on the Athenians to make peace. The Spartans knew that the success of Brasidas was causing alarm in Athens, and that an offer of a one-year armistice likely would be well received. In this way, the Spartans hoped that the Athenians would get a taste for peace, and thus would be willing to make a longer peace, whose terms would include the return of the Spartiates held captive in Athens, plus the trade of Amphipolis for Pylos and Kythera. Therefore, there was no way that Brasidas could ultimately be successful in his stated goal of liberating the Greeks, when there was such a major conflict in Ames. Also, over the winter of 424-423 BC, the Megarians had managed to recapture what was left of the Long Walls, but Athens still retained Nisiae. An Athenian alliance with Haliace in the Argolid is perhaps to be dated to this time as well, and Cleon seems to have gone to Argos as part of a diplomatic mission, with the intent to try once again to persuade them to join the war and on the Athenian side against the Spartans. At the same time, after Brasidas was rebuffed by his motherland, he now knew that he had to rely on the revolting Halkidian cities for further reinforcements. So without a moment's rest, he followed up his success at Amphipolis by marching his army on a grand tour of the Halkidiki to recruit cities to his movement. He first went against the cities in the Octae Peninsula, which was the farthest right of the three fingers of the Halkidiki. The cities there were small, and most came over to Brasidas, except for Sane, an Andrian colony, and Dium, which held out and saw their land ravaged by the invading army. Afterwards, he marched his army against Herone, which sat on the southern tip of the Sithoni Peninsula, which was the middle of the three fingers of the Halkidiki. Tyrone was an Eretrian colony, whose strategic location and rich natural resources allowed it to develop into one of the most significant cities in the Halkidiki. Tyrone was held by an Athenian garrison, but he was invited by a few conspirators inside who were prepared to betray the city to him. Mimicking his tactics at Amphipolis, Brasidas marched his army through the cold winter's night. Arriving just before dawn, he halted his army about a quarter mile from the city, near the temple of the Dioscori, so that the Athenian garrison did not perceive his approach. He was met there in secret by some of the conspirators, 
who escorted a small party of 20 lightly armed men with daggers, commanded by an Olynthian man named Lysistratos. But by the time they reached the walls, only 7 of the 20 had the courage to continue on their mission. These few slipped in through the wall, facing the sea, and without being seen, they stabbed their way through the Athenian garrison to the highest point in the city, killing every one of them. Then, they cut through the bar and managed to open up the city's western gate, facing towards Canestraum, the easternmost cape of the Pelene Peninsula, which was the farthest left of the three fingers of the Halkidiki. Meanwhile, Brasidas had led his army a little closer to the city, but once he saw that the western gate had been flung open, he sent in an advance force of a hundred peltasts ready to charge into the city. His entire plan rested on speed and the exploitation of the Tyronean people's fear. Some of the traders inside the city directed these peltasts into the agora by a back entrance. Afterwards, they raised the fire signal, as had been prearranged. Then the remaining peltasts were brought through the main gate, and they descended on the agora from a second direction. This immediately struck panic in the hearts of the surprised townspeople. Then, Brasidas led his main force towards the city, and they screamed loudly as they poured through the gate. The townspeople scattered in all directions, and Brasidas and most of his troops ascended the Acropolis, while other contingents of his army began to systematically secure the place from top to bottom. The result was that the capture of the city was so fast and so complete before most people had managed to recover from their surprise and confusion. About 50 Athenian hoplites had been sleeping in the agora when the alarm was sounded. A few were killed, but through a hastily formed fighting retreat, most were able to escape the agora to Lycuthis, their fort at the corner of the city on the sea. There, they were joined by fleeing Tyronians, while a larger Athenian force began to prepare the defenses. It was now after daybreak, and Brasidas had managed to secure the city of Tyrone, except for the Athenian fort. So he made a proclamation to the Tyronians, who had taken refuge with the Athenians, that they can come out without fearing for their rights or livelihood, and he sent a herald to invite the Athenians to a truce, so that they could evacuate Lycuthis with their property intact, as it was Halkidian, not Athenian ground. The Athenians refused this offer, but asked for a truce for a day anyway, in order to safely take up their dead. Brasidas piously granted this request for two days, and he used this time to prepare for an inevitable siege by fortifying the houses near the fort, while the Athenians did the same to their positions. Meanwhile, he called a meeting of the Tyronians, and told them basically the same thing that he had said to the Ancanthians, that he did not come to destroy the city or any individual in it, but to liberate them from the Athenians. Similarly, his speech calmed the Tyronians' nervousness, and he gained their support. Then, once the two days' truce expired, Brasidas led an assault on the Athenian fort of Lacuthis, but his men were beaten back with every wave, so for one day, the Athenians managed to keep them off. But on the second day, Brasidas brought forth a siege engine in the form of a fire-throwing machine to attack the weakest point of their defenses, most likely of a similar design to the one used by the Boeotians at Delium. But the Athenians here had set up defenses that better countered such a weapon, as they had built a temporary wooden tower on top of a house opposite the siege engine's position, and a large number of men carried up jars and casks of water and big stones, intended to be thrown at the machine to extinguish its flames. However, the weight of the water, stones, and the multitude of men was too much for the unstable structure, and at one point, it suddenly collapsed with a loud crash. 
when the tower collapsed to the ground, those Athenians who were farther off in the fort thought that the city had been taken at that point. And so they began to panic, fled in haste to their ships, and sailed off westwards to the Pelani Peninsula. Seeing the enemy in such confusion, Brasidas immediately dashed forward with his troops and took the fort, putting to the sword all of whom he found in it. There was a temple of Athena in Leucithus, so afterwards Brasidas made the whole of it consecrated ground. The rest of the winter, he spent consolidating the towns that had gone over to him and making the necessary plans to capture more the following spring. With this event, Thucydides' account of the campaign season for 424 BC came to a close. The resounding victories of Brasidas in the northeast capped off a disastrous end to 424 BC for the Athenians. The Congress at Gela brought an end to their aspirations of a Sicilian conquest, and their losses at Megara and Delium ensured that their ambitions of removing their arch enemies in the Megarid and Boeotia were not able to come to fruition. But more bothersome was that the Spartans were beginning to cause them just as much discomfort in the northeast as they had to them in the Peloponnese. The Spartan authorities had been in favor of peace since the loss of their men at Sphacteria the previous year, but the Athenians at the behest of Cleon had turned them down. However, now that these run of defeats had embarrassed the advocates for an aggressive war in Athens, the majority of the Athenians were finally ready to consider a negotiated peace. As a result, we will see a one-year armistice agreed to the following year, with the ultimate hope that both sides would come to an agreement on a longer, permanent peace. But that would not come to pass, as the two leaders most opposed to peace, Brasidas and Cleon, forced hostilities to resume, but their untimely deaths in a single battle over Amphipolis would remove what Aristophanes called the pestle and mortar of the war, which allowed the peace factions in both city-states to take control. And eventually, we see the end of the Archidamian War. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 97, The Road to Peace.